Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. For those of you who have been with us here at Christ the King, you know that though we've been in other texts of Scripture in the last few weeks, as a church, we find ourselves in the middle of a long study in the book of Hebrews. It had been my original intention to return to that study this morning, but instead I've decided to take a few weeks to preach a short series of sermons in which I hope to address the subject of race from the perspective of the gospel. Let me first explain why I've decided to do this and what it is I hope by God's grace to accomplish. We are all living in extraordinary times. In the midst of a global pandemic and an economic recession, events over the last few weeks have brought to the forefront issues of race, racism, racial injustice, and the painful history of race relations in the North American context, and particularly in the United States of America. The killing of George Floyd on May the 25th unleashed a tidal wave of global response. In North America, I think it's safe to say it's generated a broader awareness of the historic and contemporary experiences of African American and other minority groups in the North American context who've suffered racial injustice. I'm embarrassed to admit that it took this horrific tragedy to awaken in me a desire to better understand and address issues of racism in my own heart, in the church, and in the broader context of society. I'm only in the beginning stages of educating myself concerning racism and racial injustice. I have a long way to go. I can make no claim to speak from either significant personal experience nor some degree of expertise on such matters, but despite those deficiencies, I concluded that as a pastor in these days, simply to remain silent would be unacceptable because God is not silent. God has spoken and still speaks in his world through his word. God proclaims what is good and evil. God outlines how his people are to live among themselves and within the world in light of that. And more than simply telling us what to do, the gospel is about God sending his very own son, Jesus Christ, to give us new power to do what he commands. Jesus' death for us and Jesus' spirit in us are the means by which we as God's people are empowered to live in the way God has commanded us to live. And for the most part, those commandments are not mysterious. You shall not murder, God says in Exodus 20, verse 13. 
I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus clarifies in Matthew 5. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, says the Lord in Leviticus 19, verse 18. The whole law is fulfilled in that one word, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul can sum up the whole of the Christian life lived by the power of God's Spirit this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, says our Lord in Matthew chapter 7. There are no exceptions to commandments like these in the scriptures. The Bible makes plain that every human person is created in the image of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, The Apostle James affirms that teaching explicitly. People are all made in the likeness of God, James writes in James chapter 3, verse 9. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul proclaims that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And as the Apostle John writes in Revelation 5, verse 9, when God's Son died on the cross for our sins, He ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Presbyterian Church in America offers a definition of racism. They say, quote, racism is the sinful action or attitude of elevating, idolizing the superiority of one's race over another in such a way as to cause a lack of love for one another as Christ loved, to hate others in our hearts and actions and or to act toward a race in an oppressive, unjust, or indifferent manner. It's not mysterious. God has spoken and God has acted. And God commands what He commands as a reflection of who He Himself, who he himself is. This is the heart of the God we love and claim to follow in our lives. So what should this mean for how we approach racism in our day? That's what I hope we'll begin asking ourselves in the next few weeks. 
Now, as your pastor, I think the largest part of what I'm called to do is to study and proclaim God's Word. And this short sermon series will not be an exception to that. Most of you know that the pattern I follow in my preaching is the systematic exposition of whole books of the Bible. I've never attempted anything other than that before, in fact, apart from individual sermons that focus on particular occasions of the church year. But over the last month or so, I've become convinced that this is a time that requires something different. As you know, if you're on our email list at Christ the King, in early June, I elected to add my own signature to a public letter written by fellow clergy in the Anglican Church in North America. That letter was entitled, On Anti-Racism and a More Diverse and Just Anglicanism. I want to read only part of that letter to provide now some further framework for what I propose to do over the coming few weeks. In the introduction of that letter, the authors say this, quote, We see and grieve the racism and discrimination that exists and has a deep cultural and structural influence in our society, in our communities, and in our churches. The recent tragedies of Ahmoud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd are simply the latest in a long line of harrowing examples of these deeply embedded systemic realities. We see and grieve that our brothers and sisters of color, including many in our own dioceses and parishes, have been and continue to be profoundly affected by these realities. The authors go on to list some confessions and commitments in the letter, and while I won't read all of them, among the confessions are these, quote, We confess that we have failed to see, understand, and address the expressions of racism, both personal and systemic, that plague our society, communities, and churches. And then this, quote, we confess that our ignorance, complacency, and silence have undermined our fidelity to the great commandment to love God and love our neighbor, which fundamentally calls us into disciplines of anti-racism. Among the commitments the authors outline in the letter, there's one I'll read for you now. Quote, in all of our different capacities and platforms, in our churches and in the world, we commit ourselves to investing in the work of anti-racism in our catechesis, discipleship, preaching, ministry, advocacy, and reform. It's obvious that what the authors of that letter have called for is not something short-term, Preaching a few sermons here is not the fulfillment of the commitment I made when I signed that letter, but I hope it's a start. I can at least say that for me, it's the right place to start. Because I intend what we'll cover in the next few weeks to be foundational. What I propose to do is to show how it's the gospel itself 
that gives us a remarkable clarity concerning the issues of race and ethnicity. I'm not going to try in this sermon series to directly address the plethora of political and social issues that are rightly on the front burner of our discourse these days. For example, I won't directly address the topic of police brutality or racial discrimination within the criminal justice system as serious as these matters are. I won't be directly addressing issues such as the historic economic inequality and unequal access to educational opportunities. Not because these and other such subjects are not important, and not because Christians shouldn't be saying something about them, and not because I myself don't have thoughts about them. I won't be dealing with them in this series in any detail, because the work I feel compelled to do in these weeks is on a different level. To put it simply, I want us as a church to think afresh about the gospel. I want us to better understand and love the God who's brought about the reality of that gospel in our lives and in the world. And I want us to see some of the implications that gospel has for how we live, what we say and what we do, how we witness to the reality of God's kingdom in the world. In taking this approach, I am not suggesting that it is somehow sub-Christian or worldly to focus on specific matters of social justice and to speak and act in our lives with clarity concerning them. I myself desire to be better equipped to do that in these areas, and I endeavor to grow in that way. Some of you are doubtlessly already actively engaged in social justice in these areas. I would like to learn from you. But from this pulpit, what I feel personally called to do in these days is to draw our attention to the ways in which the gospel itself can and I think must undergird all our efforts as Christians to speak and act in the advancement of justice. As Christians, our pursuit of racial harmony within the church and racial justice within the world must be for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and His cross. Because as I hope to show in the weeks ahead, this is something God Himself intended to accomplish in sending his son. Grasping the truth of the gospel, in other words, should be what motivates us not only to consider our personal, individual, relational responsibilities when it comes to matters of race. Please, God, let there be among us genuine repentance of personal failings in this area. But the gospel itself should also be what motivates us to take up structural issues of racialization in our world today. It's not either or, it's both and. I'm convinced that if we get the gospel right, and if we allow that gospel to transform us, then by the grace of God, 
we will see emerging from the church, including Christ the King, not only a witness of genuine racial harmony among ourselves, but a vibrant activism for racial justice in the world. In fact, I'm praying that as we all grapple with these questions and seek to live faithfully in light of the gospel, there will be some, or even many, who will sense a calling to particular action of some kind in their lives for the cause of racial justice. And it will all be for the glory of God and the exaltation of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why it's with Jesus I want to begin this morning, just to begin to lay something of a foundation for thinking along these lines. So I propose to look now at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, the text that Nicole read for us earlier in the service. I've been reading various things in recent days and weeks, and I recently read a treatment of this passage that has stayed in my heart and in my mind and has been the reason why I want to begin here. It'd be helpful, I think, if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4. We will not go into every detail of the text in the time we have remaining. But if you're there in Luke chapter 4, you can at least look around a bit and see that at this point of Luke, we're near the, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry as Luke presents it. Jesus has been teaching in synagogues already, as verse 15 says, and then he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up, Luke explains in verse 16 of our text. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's going to do the reading. You've already heard how this episode ends. The people of Jesus' hometown want to drive him out. They do drive him out. In fact, so upset were they at what Jesus had to say that day that they want him dead. I mean, Luke says this in verse 28. When they heard these things, all, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Wrath. Verse 29, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And time is short, so let's get right to it. Why do they want to kill Jesus? What did Jesus do or say that was so upsetting to them? Remember, this is the first thing that Luke records about what Jesus taught. He's noted that Jesus has been teaching in synagogues, but it's what Jesus says in Nazareth here that Luke think, thinks needs to be the number one upfront thing in his recounting of Jesus' ministry. So what is it that leads to the response of the crowd in Nazareth? I think it's interesting that it is not the claim that Jesus makes to be the Messiah in the first part of the passage, right? You know this text, many of you. Jesus takes the scroll, he opens it, he turns to Isaiah chapter 61, 
Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke says, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I think that the way Luke puts that suggests that Jesus says more than just that one sentence. Jesus began to say to them, today in the script, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, because I think implied here is that Jesus then explains what Isaiah chapter 61 means, how he is the one bringing its fulfillment. This is an incredible claim. This is the Jesus they knew from when he was a boy, the carpenter's son who's from their town. He says to them, I am the Messiah this passage speaks of. And the people love it. They think this sounds great. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And again, I think that suggests that Jesus has been saying more than just what's there in verse 21. But it's what comes next, you see, that Luke wants us to connect to Jesus' declaration concerning Isaiah 61. Because now we see that Jesus plans to intentionally say something that will cause them to react differently to what he's claiming. And Jesus knows that this will be their reaction because he says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that Jesus knows what's about to happen here and that Jesus proceeds to cause it to happen anyway. Why would he do that? I think the reason is because Jesus is about to make clear to them something of the heart of God. Jesus was not okay with them being happy about his claim to be the Messiah because Jesus knew that there was something seriously wrong with how they thought about that Messiah and the God who sent him. Jesus wasn't in this for popularity. He wasn't trying at this stage in his ministry even before he's picked any of his apostles or disciples. He was not trying to ensure that he had the maximum number of followers so that his message would carry lots of influence in the Galilean countryside or something of that sort. Jesus knew the heart of his father. He knew what the implications of Isaiah 61 really were. And I think he could not let the crowd in his hometown of Nazareth go along with their warped ideas of what he was about. And so, Jesus proceeds to tell them only very briefly two stories out of the book of Kings. 
he obviously assumes they know the larger context, in order to illustrate what it will mean that he is fulfilling the words of Isaiah. I don't think those in the synagogue that day saw any of this coming. In Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, refer to a longer account of an episode that you can read later in 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll not go back to Kings this morning. Let's just read those verses in Luke. Jesus says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a widow, to a woman who was a widow. You hear the emphasis there, don't you, in the way Jesus relates it. It's not subtle. Jesus is rarely subtle. There were many widows in Israel, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, the widow in the land of Sidon. The point is, Sidon isn't in Israel. Sidon is, is a Phoenician port city. It's in modern-day Lebanon. Jesus tells this story to emphasize that God doesn't have Elijah to go, to go to any of the ethnic Jewish widows, but instead he has Elijah go to one who is a foreigner, ethnically and politically, and bless her. And remember, this is after Isaiah 61 has just declared the year of the Lord's favor, right? Jesus says he's fulfilling that. And they seem happy about it. But what are the implications? Jesus says it's going to be like this episode with Elijah. Elijah goes to a non-Israelite woman and he meets her needs. And she comes to believe in the God of Elijah. And Yahweh knows her and loves her. And the kingdom of God has broken into this woman and her family who were otherwise far from God in Sidon. And Jesus has come to free the captives and heal the blind and deliver the oppressed. And the point must be that those people are not limited to any one place or to any one ethnic grouping. You remember Simeon's words from earlier in Luke, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And I don't know if you've ever looked at this account in Luke 4 in quite this way or not, but the point of it is that there are no favored ethnic groups in the kingdom of God. What Jesus makes clear here is that the new people of God that he has come to gather and to deliver to save will not be defined along ethnic or racial lines. What are the implications of that for us as Christians? Well, the crowd in Nazareth doesn't like it. Look briefly at the second story Jesus tells them in verse 27. This is right before Luke says they're filled with wrath. Jesus recounts for them an episode from 2 Kings chapter 5 here in verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel, Jesus says, in the time of the prophet Elisha, 
and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And you can see immediately that the point's the same as in the first episode. Jesus offers this remarkably brief summary of what is actually a long narrative in 2 Kings 5, because according to Jesus, what is the truly significant and remarkable thing about it? That it's a non-Israelite leper who receives cleansing, healing. That it's a non-ethnic Jew whom God seeks out through his prophet. And after quite a dramatic series of events, Naaman does as the Lord instructed, and Naaman is healed and cleansed, forgiven, I would argue saved in the narrative of 2 Kings 5. The favor of the Lord came upon him. Naaman's a Syrian. And that's when they hit the roof. They understood what Jesus was saying now, and they rejected it. It made them furious, in fact. The Messiah would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and that favor would be for everyone. Justice would be for everyone. Salvation would be for everyone. The implications are that the followers of this Messiah have to embrace that fact and commit to that being their passion as well, you see. This wasn't the kingdom as they had envisioned it. Jesus Christ came to redeem a people from every ethnic group, not just one or even a few. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says in response to the faith of the Roman centurion, I tell you, many will come from the east and west, that is, from lands and places far away other than Israel, and they will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. There's a reason the people in the synagogue wanted to kill Jesus for what he said in his hometown. And it's as straightforward as it is dark. They didn't want non-Israelites to have the blessings of Isaiah 61. They didn't want a Messiah who would declare the Lord's favor on those who weren't part of their ethnic group. And they sure didn't want to care about the liberty and deliverance and justice that the kingdom of God would bring to everyone. They had either forgotten or rejected the fact that this was always the point of the election of Israel that this was always central in the heart of God. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The blessings of the kingdom are for all people. Like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, God is active to bring healing and liberty and salvation to everyone. 
Now it all revolves around Jesus. The one who claimed to bring the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. As we'll see next week, Jesus would in fact die to bring about this vision of the kingdom of God. And so, the point I'm making this morning is as basic as it gets. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be people who are gripped by Jesus' vision of the kingdom and tolerate racism or racial injustice, whether it be in our own hearts, in the church, or in the world. To do so would be to deny the gospel itself and the one who claimed to bring its blessings to the whole world. What a difference it will make when we fully embrace this Messiah. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.